Psalm 1, it says, Blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in seasons, and whose leaf does not wither, whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked are are they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fears. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them with his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will pro proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned. You rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and you will destroy in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Thank you, ladies. <clears throat> All right, turn your Bibles with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Got my other microphone on? There you go. <clears throat> Thank you, Mike. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22, says this. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to Jesus and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going with him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has, has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he who, whom God has sent utters the words of God. 
for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things to his, into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity we have to come before your word. Lord, to approach your holy scriptures with the opportunity to learn more from you, to learn what your will is for us as a church, what your will is for us as individuals. Lord, may we not take this for granted. May we uh, treasure this time that we have to learn from you and from your word. I pray today as we, as we talk through this passage, Lord, that, that, um, that we will bring you glory. In your name, amen. amen. <clears throat> On March 4th, 1966, Beatles legend John Lennon made a comment that five months later would turn the American South against the band. This controversy led radio stations to stop playing their music. It caused picketing at their concerts. People burned their records. And ultimately, it was one factor which caused the Beatles to stop touring altogether. During an interview with Maureen Cleave of the London Evening Standard, Lennon, when asked about his views on Christianity, stated this. This is the statement that caused all the, all the issues. He said, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right, and I'll be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. Jesus was all right, but his disciples were thick and ordinary. It's them twisting it that, turn, that ruins it for me. Now, my goal today is not to start the controversy all over again and tell you all that you need to go home and burn your Beatles records. Um, the goal is just Jesus as an illustration to show how one person believed that he had increased beyond Jesus. The kind of pride shown by John Lennon is not unlike the pride that we each have in our own hearts. Although we may not say it out loud... We each deal and struggle with, with pride. In fact, every sin we commit ultimately stems from pride. One old theologian said this. He said that pride is the mother of all sins. It is the sin that is pregnant with every other sin. So uh, today we're, we're going to look at humility. We're going to learn from, look at humility from the life of John the Baptist and we're going to learn about him and, and how to be humble from his example. First, we'll see that kingdom people, that is, people focused on advancing God's kingdom, are humble people. Second, we'll see that kingdom people are biblical people or people who have a biblical theology, especially in their beliefs about Christ and about salvation. So first of all, we're going to see today that kingdom people are humble people. Now, let's go back to our, our passage and kind of wade through this first half of the passage and kind of figure out what exactly is going on here. What's, what exactly the author, John, and, and, the, and the author, the Holy Spirit, is trying to get to us. What is he trying to communicate here? And then we'll look at some applications. So first of all, these, these beginning verses are kind of setting the stage for the controversy or the issue that's about to come up. It says, after this, that is, after after this, the thing that happened before, this is Jesus' uh, ministry, his, his discussion with Nicodemus. We don't know how long afterwards, but sometime after the conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. So they left the main town, they left the main city, uh, and, they, and they went out into the, into the rural areas. 
And he remained there with them and was baptizing. Now, we might be tempted here to think, oh, contradiction. Because in John chapter 4, in the very next chapter, it says that only his disciples were baptizing. Jesus wasn't baptizing, right? This passage seems to indicate that Jesus is baptizing. Now, just to clarify on this issue right here, right? This is not a contradiction, Okay, what's going on here is that, is that John, the author John, and, and the Holy Spirit are using Jesus was baptizing to talk about his ministry was baptizing. Now John, again, comes back and clarifies that. Jesus wasn't the one baptizing. If you look in chapter 4, verse 2, it says, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So we can understand then with that clarification that he makes in chapter 4, we can understand what he means in, earlier in, in, in chapter 3, verse, uh, verse 22. Says John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem uh, because he was because the water was plentiful there. That makes sense, right? If you're going to be baptizing people, go where there's a lot of water. That just makes that just makes sense. And people were coming and being baptized. Now, if we look at this next verse, this next verse is a little interesting. You would think it would be obvious that John the Baptist was not in prison, right? He's right there. He's right there baptizing where Jesus is, right? But then John, the, the author tells us, is for John had not yet been put in prison. Well, duh, right? Does he think we're stupid? Well, no. So, so understand why, why this phrase is here. It's a, in your Bible, it's probably in parentheses. It's an explanation. It's, it's commentary that the gospel writer is giving as he's telling the story. And what he's doing is, he, this, this, this gives evidence to us that John probably also had either Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or all three of them when he was writing this gospel. What he is clarifying is he's saying, we're still before this time when when John was put in prison. Now, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus' ministry, the, the actual descriptions of the ministry of Jesus don't happen until after John is in prison. So if you were to read Matthew, Mark, or Luke, the first miracles they talk about, the first things they talk about after Jesus' baptism, the first ministry events they discuss are all things that take place after, Jesus, after John is in prison. So John is just clarifying, basically saying, hey guys, everything I've covered so far is all before what you all know. Right? If you have read Matthew, Mark, or Luke, you haven't heard any of this stuff yet. This is all still before, before John was put in prison. So that's what's going on there. John doesn't think you're stupid. He doesn't think I'm stupid. He's, he's helping us understand in comparison with the other gospels, where are we in the timeline still? Um, then continuing on into the next verse, it says, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. We don't really know what the conversation was. The text doesn't tell us. We have no real idea what, what did they discuss. What were they concerned about? What was this topic of purification that they were discussing? Most likely, it was probably, they were probably comparing and contrasting John's baptism with the different purification rites that would have been involved in Judaism. We've talked about some of those over the last couple of weeks. But for example, we've talked about, when we talked about John baptizing Jesus, we mentioned that uh, the Jews had a practice of self-baptism, whereby if they wanted to be purified, they would dip themselves in cold water, and that was their way of purifying themselves. If you read the, uh, if you read, uh, the Old Testament law, you see this all the time. Bathe yourself in water, and then you'll be, you'll be unclean until the evening. You bathe yourself in water, you'll be unclean until the evening. 
It's over and over and over again in, 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 in like the book of Leviticus and so on. Uh, all these purification rituals and things like that that were going on. And again, those had been expanded in Judaism beyond what the scriptures had said. Those had been expanded to other areas to include things like cleaning your forks and cleaning your dishes. And they, they would, as we looked at the other week about uh, Jesus turning the water into wine, they had six basins that they would use to clean. They would have to clean one and clean the next, clean the next, clean the next. And they had this purification ritual to make sure dishes or your hands or whatever else were clean. These unscriptural, extra-biblical purification rituals. So there was some kind of discussion like, John, so, so what, what, how is your baptism like this? Are, are there similarities? What are the differences? That's probably what this issue was. Whatever the conversation was, whatever the debate was, it caused John's followers to start thinking about their own ministry. started causing them to think about John's ministry. Look at this in verse 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi or teacher, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. So at this point, remember we we saw a few weeks ago how some of John's disciples started following Jesus. Well, not all of them did. Some of them continued to follow John. Even though John's ministry was to point people to Jesus, there were some people who still continued to follow John. These people were concerned. They said, John, all the people are going to him. What does that mean about us? What's going to happen to our ministry? What's going to happen to you? You may be asking him, maybe kind of asking him, are you you embarrassed about this? Are you worried about this? Are you going to lose your ministry? I mean, there's not, not going to be anybody left to come and get baptized by you. They're all going to be going to Jesus. And maybe they were a little bit concerned. Whatever the, whatever the issue was, they were concerned about, about the durability of John's ministry. And if you look at verse 27, it says, how, this is how John answers. This is great. He says, he says uh, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. The word from heaven there, that phrase from heaven, was a way that they would, uh, it was a, a nice way, and uh, um, if you think back to first century Judaism, um, uh, they would not want to say the name of God directly. It would, have been, it would have been unclean to say the name of God because they honored the name of God so much they didn't even want to say it, right? So they wouldn't even say the name of God. So there was this kind of, this uh, cultural way of saying God by saying from heaven. They would talk about from heaven as a, as a way to refer to God. So this is kind of what John is doing here. He says, no, we don't receive anything from heaven, or in other words, from God. We don't receive anything from God unless it's given to you, unless it's given uh, by him. Um, so so John, John steps back and says, look, I don't, I don't receive anything. We don't receive anything unless it's given to us. We'll come back to this and kind of flesh this out and look at how, how all these things apply in just, in, in just a second. Um, but for, for now, let's continue, let's continue trotting through this. Verse 28 says, You yourselves bear we witness that I said I am not the Christ, and I have been sent before him. If you remember back to John chapter 1, it's exactly what John had said. He had people that came to him and asked him, So are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you, are you the prophet? Who are you? And he says, I'm the one in the wilderness preparing the way of the Lord. Right? We saw John's humility there. He's not, he's not trying to make a big name for himself. He's saying, I'm just preparing the way for the Savior. That's all I'm doing. And we see him here again. He says, look, I told you guys what my job was. I told you that I'm not the Messiah. Right? So in other words, he's saying, look, this should be expected. 
that my ministry would kind of die out and Jesus would take over. Right? Because that was my whole goal in my ministry. And look, at he continues on to, to explain to them this concept to help them understand what exactly he means here. In verse 29, he says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, his joy, this joy of mine is now complete. This illustration from John is, is explaining his understanding of his role. He's trying to help his followers understand what he is there to do. The friend of the bridegroom, or what we might call the best man, in a Judean wedding would have organized all the details and presided over the wedding. So the best man had a very important role. The best man finds his greatest joy then in knowing that the groom and his bride are united with great rejoicing. Right? That's what he's saying. He's saying, look, the best man, all he does is he wants to see his friend get married. Right? That's what he wants to see happen. Now, further, it's also possible that there's some rules, there's some law issues that he's dealing with as well. It's possible that law forbade the best man from marrying the bride. Right? Now that might seem obvious again, but there's there, but there was, there was ancient laws that if, if somebody was the bride, the friend of the bridegroom, the best man was legally not allowed to have a relationship with the bride. Right? You could not do that. It was against the law. So in other words, John, John might have had that in, in, in his mind. And so he may also be saying that he is the last one who would complete with the, compete with the bridegroom. Right? He's saying, guys, I'm not that guy. I'm the last one who should be allowed to do that. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. I'm the best man of the wedding. I'm not some guy trying to take the bride from the bridegroom. That's not what I'm here to do. Now, further, he also may have had in mind uh, some, some pat- and most likely and almost assuredly, he had some idea of uh, some scriptural background in mind as well. In Isaiah 62, verses 4 and 5, it, it depicts God's people as his bride and God as the bridegroom. So very likely, John had the, this and other passages like it in mind, and, and he, he was thinking about how... how um, uh, uh, that he understood his role as introducing the faithful to their king and Messiah. That's what he understood his role to be. My goal is to just show people there, there's the bridegroom, go to him. So John's not surprised at all that people would start going to Jesus. In fact, he rejoices over it. And he says here in verse 30, he must increase and I must decrease. He must increase and I must decrease. Uh, D.A. Carson says this. this is in short, John says, he must become greater, I must become less. The must is nothing less than the determined will of God. John finds his joy not in grudgingly conceding victory to a superior opponent, but in wholeheartedly embracing God's will and the supremacy it assigns to Jesus. So John is saying, you know what? He has to become greater. And I have to become less because that is God's will. And I'm fine with that. Because he wants God's will to be done. Now that we've kind of explained and unpacked this first half of the passage, let's kind of dive in here and kind of see what we have going on, kind of see what's going, what, what the text is calling us to do. John here models for us the kind of humility needed to make an impact for the kingdom of God. As we mentioned in the introduction, humility is very difficult for all of us. Right? If you ever say, even when you say, oh yeah, I'm a humble person, sorry, you just lost it. 
right? You just lost all credibility. um, Every sin we commit, from getting angry with our spouse, being short with our children, not obeying our parents, lust, lying, stealing, love of money, or whatever sin you can think of, any sin you think of, all sin comes from pride. Our greatest desire since the Garden of Eden is to be the God of our own universe. To replace the God of the Bible with ourselves and to be the ruler of our own lives. That's what we desire. That's why all of our sin, that's why even the smallest sin is so reprehensible to God is because it is our that we are saying, you know what, I want to be the ruler of my own universe. God, I'm going to replace you. I can do this better than you can. I can rule my life better than you can. If you look back in Genesis, that's absolutely not the case. Right? God creates the world, and it's good, it's good, it's good. He creates the husband-wife relationship and says, it is very good. And the first thing that we see is good is the very thing we're told not to do. Who knows what's best for us? God does. Amen. Right? He knows what's best for us. And yet we, in our pride and in our arrogance, we sin because we want to be God. In this passage, we see how John the baptizer demonstrates humility. When confronted with the downfall of his own ministry, he responds first by saying, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. In other words, John is satisfied with where God has placed him. Are you satisfied with where God has placed you? Are you really satisfied? Often pastors become jealous over another person's, over another person and over their ministry. Oh, he has a larger church. He has more staff, bigger budgets, whatever the case may be. There have been days when, when I've longed for someone else's ministry. You know, I wish I was in that position. Oh, I wish I was there. Oh, man, I could do that. I've been there before. I've had those, I've had those thoughts. I've had that mentality before. I've um, I've told myself that I deserve that position more than that person does, either in ministry or in secular jobs, even in other jobs that are not ministry related. You know, I could do that. I could be the manager, right? You ever had a thought like that? I could do the I could be the manager. I could be the I could run this business better than they could. You know, I could do that. Or maybe uh, maybe. Uh, Maybe you've had uh, some of these similar thoughts. You think maybe, you know, I deserve that promotion way more than that person does. Or maybe at church you thought, I could be the head of that committee. Or I could be in charge of that ministry. I could do better than they're doing. Ultimately, all this squabbling for position and power is nothing more than pride. It's all it is. Let's call it what it is. It's pride. Instead of fighting for position or recognition, we ought to be satisfied with where God has placed us. The humble person will be satisfied with wherever God has placed you, for good or ill. Further, we see from John that we should rejoice for the good that happens to others. Often, this is extremely difficult for us. John explains that the best man rejoices exceedingly for the bridegroom. I've been a groomsman in several weddings. I'm going to use myself as an example again. 
I, I was, I've been the best man, uh, I've been in, in a groomsman, or I've even been best man in, we, in weddings before I even met Charity. Um, and before, I would, um, before Charity and I were married, before we were even dating, in some of those weddings, I found myself jealous of the groom. Right? Not because I wanted their bride, but because I wanted to be married. Right? And so I, I had... I, had, I, I wanted to be married. So you may think that that's, that's natural, right? You're single, of course you want to be married. Of course that was something that you wanted to have happen. But let's be honest. Instead of rejoicing with my friends that they were getting married, I was having my own pity party, wondering why God hadn't let me get married yet or even have a girlfriend. In fact, at the time, as you may already see, I had an idol in my heart called marriage. Even something good that God had created, this, this creation of marriage. I had made an idol out of this created thing. So you know what? That's what my heart desires. That's what my heart wants. And I'm going to stake my whole life, my whole direction in life on that. And I had an idol of marriage and I bowed down at that altar. It wasn't until God crushed that idol in my heart and brought me to be satisfied without a bride that he brought me charity. It wasn't until then. Now, again, that's not a secret formula. So if you're like, oh, yeah, I want to get married. I'm going to go ahead and make sure I break that idol and then we're good, right? No, that would just be more worshiping of that idol, right? Now, that story ends up having a happy ending, but ultimately my pride crippled my ability to rejoice in the good things God was doing in the lives of my friends. As we see from John, the humble person will rejoice in the blessings others receive, not wallow in pity at their blessings, so, again, going back to maybe the illustration of someone else getting a promotion over you. You say, oh, man, I wanted that promotion so badly. Instead of, of being angry about that, what this text calls us to do is say, I'm so glad they got that promotion. I'm so glad they received that. You know what? It's okay that I didn't get that. That's where humility comes in. And again, we could, we could talk about applications of humility for days. Um, in fact, I'll give you a recommendation for a book here in just a second if you really want to really search through this idea of humility. Finally, we see from John's example of humility that he recognizes, recognizes the supremacy of Christ. Look at this in verse 30. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Dear Christian, it is the will of God for Christ to become greater in your life, for you to depend more on Christ in your life. Often we think the other way around. We think, we think you know what, if, if, if I'm a mature Christian, I don't need as much Jesus. Right? That's exactly backwards. And for, for a Christian, if you're, if you're growing in your relationship with Christ, you find out that much more that you need Jesus. The, the, whole, the whole idea of Christian growth, the whole goal of Christian growth is for us to say, I can't do this. I need to have Jesus. In fact, that's what Christianity is all about in the first place. When we, tell, when, we, when we confess our sin to Jesus, when we repent of our sins and we give him our lives, we're saying, I can't save me. I need someone else to do it. And the same goes as you continue to grow in your life with Christ. So how big is Jesus in your life? Is he just a footnote or an afterthought? As we thought, saw earlier, all of our pride ultimately is telling God that we don't need him and that we want to be God in our lives. If we're making ourselves God, we will miss the greatness of our Savior. 
If we're trying to become God in our own lives, we are going to miss that he, we're going to miss how great Jesus is. We're just going to miss it. If you truly want to grow in humility and make an impact for the kingdom of God, you must seek to know Christ in all of his greatness. And we'll talk about that. We'll expand on that in the next point. Uh, I did want to make the one recommendation for you. There's a book called Humility by a guy named C.J. Mahaney. C.J. Mahaney, a book called Humility. It's a, it's a small book, short little book, excellent book. It's really hard to read that because it will tear you to shreds. The first time I read the book, I, was, I got through chapter one. I was like, I don't even know what I'm doing anymore. I just quit. I'm done, right? My, my, my toast had been burnt, if you will. And I was done. But this, it shows how the book shows and, and, and shows from scripture how, how pride is so deeply seated in our lives. And, you're, and my friend, you're gonna spend the rest of your life. If you're seeking to be humble, you're gonna spend the rest of your life doing it because God is gonna continue to show you where pride is taking over, where pride is taking over. And you're never gonna really reach a level of perfection but the goal is to continue to be conformed more to the image of Christ so that he may become greater and we may become less. In order to make Christ great in our lives, we must have a biblical understanding of who he is. So as we'll see in this next section, kingdom people are also a biblical people. Or you might also say that they have a biblical theology. Now look at this. Uh, we, we saw last week that our passage ends with a commentary from the writer of the gospel. Right? We saw that last week. After jo- Jesus talked to Nicodemus, then, then John the gospel writer comes in and he's, he kind of explains that in, in, in verses uh, 16 through 21. He kind of unpacks that for us. He does the same thing here. After he talks about this issue going on with, the, uh, with, the, uh, with this conversation with the Jew and John's disciples, after that takes place, place, then he kind of unpacks and kind of helps us understand what's happening here. Um, verse 31, it says, he who comes from above is above all. He who, uh, he who is the, uh, of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. Jesus alone, right? So what, what's going on here is you have this phrase that John the Baptist uses at the end of this. It says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Now, John the gospel writer and the Holy Spirit are jumping in and saying, and here is what that means, Right? We see that Jesus alone is from above, and therefore he's above all. By contrast, everyone else is from the earth. Now to help us understand this, this this term from the earth is different than in John 3.16 where it says God loved the world. That phrase the world in in, in John 3.16 has this idea of all of sinful humanity, that God God sends his son for sinful humanity. This, This phrase here is not necessarily talking about uh, sinfulness so much as it's talking about uh, the, 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 we are finite and limited, right? Whereas Jesus is from above and he is not finite, he is infinite and he is unlimited. We as humans, we people who are from the earth, we are finite and we are limited. We, we can't do anything. We can't, we don't have that godness that Jesus has. And then um, John continues on here. He's, so he, first of all, he brings context. He who, is, he who comes from above is above all. He who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. In verse 32, he says, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. John, again, here is, he's reflecting back on what Jesus had said in, verse, in chapter three, verse 11, when he told Nicodemus that I bear testimony and you don't believe. Right? So John is reflecting on that and saying, and no one's believing this. 
he, Jesus' testimony is out there. He's telling about what he's seen and what he heard, right? He's telling about the way to salvation, and no one's receiving it. Yet no one has received. In verse 33, then, he continues on. Whoever receives this testimony sets his seal to this. In other words, makes his mark, finalizes this. This is if you receive the testimony, if you were a Christian, if you receive the testimony of Jesus, you believe that he is who he says he is, this is what this says about you. It says that you set your seal to this, that God is true or that God is truthful. The opposite is also true. If you reject the testimony of Jesus, if you reject who Jesus is, then you make God to be a liar. If you reject the gospel, you ultimately say that Jesus, that God himself is a liar. Everyone who believes in Jesus is not only saying that Jesus is truthful, but also that God the Father is truthful. Jesus so completely says and does all that God says and does and only what God says and does that to believe Jesus is to believe God. Conversely, not to believe Jesus is to call God a liar. In 1 John 5, 10, it says this, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. It is so important to believe what God says. It is so important to put our faith and trust in the scriptures where God reveals his word to us. <clears throat> coming, coming down to verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. This uh, it's, it's, it's was widely, widely understood in that day and, and uh in the Old Testament, that God gives a measure of the Holy Spirit to a prophet. When a prophet speaks, God gives a portion of the Holy Spirit to that person according to their ministry. So John is, is kind of talking about this idea, and he says, now, opposed to that or in distinction from that, God just doesn't give Jesus some of his Holy Spirit. He gives to Jesus all of his Holy Spirit without measure. In other words, unlimited Holy Spirit giving going on here. Now, as the second person of the Trinity, of course, that Jesus has this, this, in, this relationship with God the Father and with God the Holy Spirit that demands that, that there must be this, this continual, unlimited pouring out of the Holy Spirit on Jesus. But this is what, that's what's going on here is, is, is explaining not that God gives us the Holy Spirit without measure, but that in this particular passage that God gives the Son Holy, the Holy Spirit without measure. Because the Father, uh, we see in here uh, in verse, verse 35 then, why he does this. Why does he give the Spirit without measure? The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. The Father sends the Son and the Son is sent by the Father. Further, the Son is ultimately obedient to the Father. But we see that this relationship is a relationship of love. Right? This isn't a, a servant-master relationship in that kind of sense. It's, this is a relationship of love. Because the Father loves the Son, he gives all things to him without limit. We see here that even the unfolding of redemptive history finds its ultimate source in the loving relationships in the Godhead. All of salvation ultimately finds its source in the loving relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Verse 36 then says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son 
shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Once again, we have the call to believe, just like we had last week. Whoever believes has eternal life. To not believe is to reject the command of God to believe in the Son, and thus is just as much disobedience as it is unbelief. Hence the warning here that those who do not obey the Son will, are then, uh, will not have life. But further, the wrath of God remains on him. Ultimately, an unbeliever, if, you're, if you are not a believer, you, are, you remain the object of God's holy wrath. So what do we learn from this passage? We're talking about being kingdom people. We're talking about this idea that he must increase, we must decrease. That we talked about humility in the last section. Part of this idea that he must increase and we must decrease is, is that we as a people, we as a church, we as individuals need to have a biblical theology. We need to have a biblical theology. We saw in the previous section that humility is demanded of all those who would make an impact for the kingdom of God. Humility is ultimately expressed in the declaration, he must increase and I must decrease. Christ must increase because of who he is as the Son of God and as our Savior. As we see in this section, believing correctly about Jesus is vitally important to his increasing and having supremacy in our lives. To not believe what Scripture says about Jesus is to call God a liar. Now, before we get too arrogant, right, we're all probably sitting in our pews and thinking, well, I got that right, right? I don't, I don't have anything that I don't believe correctly about. I got that one, right? I'm, I'm, I'm safe under this so I can fly under the radar. My toes don't need to get stomped on. Right, before we, st- before we do that, let's, I want to share with you guys a couple of statistics. Now, again, this may not be true of you. Uh, this is just some statistics. These, were, these actually came out at the end of last month. Uh, Lifeway had done some research, some internet surveys, and they, uh, they kind of had this divided out there. You can, you can look this up. There's about 40-something different categories that they had talked about. Let me give you a couple of these statistics just to show you kind of where we as Americans are at in terms of our beliefs about Jesus and having correct theology. First of all, two-thirds of Americans, that is 64%, say that God accepts the worship of all religions including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Two-thirds of people in America believe that, Jesus, that God is okay with all religions and that all religions are, are just fine. Further, two-thirds of those with evangelical beliefs, right? That's us. That's people who we say we believe the Bible, we trust the Bible, we believe in Jesus, Right? We, we, we believe the Bible is the word of God. That's us right here, this category. Two-thirds of those with evangelical beliefs, 64%, say that heaven is a place where all people will ultimately be reunited with their loved ones. Two-thirds of evangelical Christians are, are what we would call universalists. And then in contradiction, every single one of those evangelical believers would also say that... Jesus is the only way to heaven. It's a contradiction, guys. To believe in universalism and in exclusivism at the exact same time is a contradiction. All people will not go to heaven if there's only one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus. That's biblical theology. But two-thirds of evangelicals in the United States of America 
believe that everybody's going to heaven. And yeah, you have to go, you have to believe in Jesus in order to do that. What? It just baffles me. These, these statistics are just baffling. <clears throat> Further, three quarters of Americans, that's 74% of Americans, disagree with the idea that even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. This is a problem in the United States, especially, that we make very little of sin and we make much of ourselves. The opposite is, scru- is true scripturally. Scripturally, the Bible makes much of sin and very little of ourselves. Children, teenagers, when your parents say, hey, can you take out the trash? You go, nope. Disobedience to parents, that one sin right there is worthy of eternal damnation and separation from God forever. Because that one sin, as we've talked about, what that sin is, is you know what? I'm God. God told me to be obedient to my parents. Ah, who cares about that? I don't care. That doesn't, I don't need to do that. I want to be God in my own life. And there's a direct assault, swords drawn, charging at the God of the universe and saying, you're wrong, I'm right. That one time when we lose, lose our temper with our spouse, when we make a cutting remark, when we flip out on our kids. Now there is grace and forgiveness at the cross. Don't get me wrong here, guys. There is grace and forgiveness at the cross, but we must understand the severity of our sin, that even those things that we might think are really small, lying on a tax form or whatever the case may be, these things that we might paint as really small, God sees as huge and deserving of eternal wrath. Three quarters of Americans don't believe that, that sin deserves eternal damnation. I thought this was interesting. 69% of, of people in America believe in the Trinity. Right? That's, that's the belief that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, there is one God who has three persons, three, three personalities, three persons in the Godhead, that the Father is a person, the Son is a person, the Holy Spirit is a person. Right? So 69% believe in the Trinity. Again, also within the belief of the Trinity should be inherent that, that Jesus as the Son of God always existed, is not a created being. Right? 69% of Americans believe in the Trinity. 52% of Americans. So again, some of these people, there's going to be intersection there, right? Both of these are they're going to be, there's going to, definitely going to be some overlap. 52% believe that Jesus is the highest created being. That's a contradiction again. And 56% say that the Holy Spirit is a force, not a person. It's a contradiction. Before we say, hey, I've got all this theology stuff down, do you? Is your beliefs, are the things that you believe grounded in scripture? What these statistics show us is that while most Americans would believe that God is the author of the Bible and even believe in the Trinity, most Americans have a theology that is not guided by the scriptures. In essence, our poor theology, our choice to believe ourselves is our choice to believe in ourselves rather than the scriptures. And it is us trying to flesh out our desire to increase above Christ. Even worse, it is us calling God a liar. 
If we're going to be a people advancing the kingdom of God, it is vital that we seek to have a biblical theology. What we believe and how we act as a church and as individuals must be guided by and conform to the scriptures. Our beliefs ought not to be made in our image, but rather to be made in the image of God and his word. As a, as a church, we cannot buy into a lazy theology that rests on what we've always done. Amen. If scripture disagrees with something that we are doing, then we must have the humility to get rid of that practice for a more biblically faithful practice. Further, we cannot rest on what my parents always said, or even, well, I've always just believed this. If scripture stands in contradiction to our beliefs, then God stands in contradiction to our beliefs. Amen. For today, let me settle on discussing specifically the beliefs in mind in this passage. First, Jesus is not a high order created being. As we saw in John 1, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, fully God in eternity. Took on full humanity that he might die the death that we deserve for our sin, even the smallest sin. Three days later, he rose from the grave, conquering sin and Satan and death and offering resurrected life to all those who would believe on his name. Amen. Jesus is not just some guy. He's above all because he is God. Amen. Further, we must believe that those who do not believe in Jesus for their salvation call God a liar. Amen. Those who don't believe call God a liar and his holy wrath still rests on them. That gives us a task to do, doesn't it? That alone says we need, we must be about sharing the gospel with others. Because otherwise they will die without him. They will die with the wrath of God still remaining on them. That is our job. That is your job. That is my job, Christian. It's not somebody else's job. It's not somebody we can pay them some money so they can go do it. It's our job. We started today looking at the Beatles legend and how he believed that he had increased beyond Jesus. In contrast, we saw the humility of John the baptizer, whose ultimate goal in his life was to see Jesus increase. Um, <clears throat> uh, was to see Jesus increase and himself decrease. We saw how pride permeates our entire lives and how we must actively pursue humility if we want to have any impact for the kingdom of God. We also saw how pursuing humility means that Jesus must become even greater and we must become even smaller. One important way that Jesus becomes greater in our lives is in believing correctly about what scripture says about him and about what we must do and be as individuals and as a church. Talking a lot about humility, the one person who's ever walked this earth who never needed to have humility shouldn't have ever needed to have humility, is Jesus Christ. The God-man, Jesus Christ. He didn't have sin. He didn't have pride. Yet scripture tells us in Philippians chapter 2, says that he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Not only does John the Baptist model humility for us, Jesus Christ in his very life manifested and, 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 and showed and demonstrated humility for us. Why should we pursue humility? Because even our Savior humbled himself to die for our sins. How much more than we who are not the God of the universe? 
how much more should we pursue Christ and pursue humility? Let me pray for you guys as we enter into a time of invitation. As we move into this time of invitation, if you're not a believer, uh, let me ask you and urge you to share the, to, to come forward. I'd love to share with you how you can know for sure that you have a relationship with Jesus. If you are a believer and there's something that was brought up in the sermon or something that the text spoke to you that you want to deal with God right now, this altar is open, these stairs, there's nothing special about this place, though it may be a, a, an opportunity for you to get one-on-one with God. Let me pray for you guys in the invitation. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for these people. Uh, thank you that you have uh, brought us together to hear your word. God, I pray now that we would humble ourselves before your word. That, Lord, we would seek and pursue humility so that we as a church, that we as individuals can be, uh, can glorify you and um, can make a maximum impact for your kingdom. In your name, amen. Amen. for this day. We thank you for the message. Father, we thank you for the lives that are going to be changed and touched by this word. Father, we just pray that we are, we humble ourselves throughout our daily lives. Father, that we sacrifice for others like you have for us. Father, we just pray that we just seek you in everything we say and do. 
Father, it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Y'all are dismissed. Me and Jesus got our own thing going. Me and Jesus got it all worked out. Yeah, me and Jesus got our own thing going. We don't need anybody to tell us what it's all about. Justin, don't forget you. I'm sorry that we haven't. How are you? I'm doing good. How about you? I'm well. I'm very well. Hoppy, thank you so much, brother. Thank you so much. You go in there, sir. You're going to need that. I got to stop it.